We've been involved, we just started a new part of our series. We've been in a look series for the last couple of months, and we've moved from looking within ourselves to this season of the summer where we're looking around. We're asking ourselves as a congregation to look around at the world that we live in and ask the question, Jesus, where are you? What are you doing? What's your heart? What are you excited about? What grieves your heart? What should we be weeping about? We're asking the Lord as a congregation to give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit of God is doing in Waltham and the surrounding areas, what the Spirit of God is feeling, what the Spirit of God is seeing and wanting to show to us. And so we're parking here for a couple of months. We're not going to go fast through this season. And we're going to have messages that center around the heart of God for the people not only in here, but for the people out there. And hopefully, each one of us, individually and in smaller groups, are going to take the challenge, and we'll talk about this a little later in my message, of exploring with God and with one another, what is it that you might be saying to us as a church for the next five to seven years to specifically engage and outreach the people that we live among, the people that we walk past, the people that we shop with, the people that serve us in our restaurants and serve us in our, in our other areas of life, the people that we rub shoulders with. God, what are you wanting us to see? How can we be the hands and feet of Jesus to the community around us? Amen? Okay. I get to preach, you get to do all the work. That's how it works, right? Not true. I'll be right there with you, but I do get to preach. How many of you have been walking down the street in some big city or some area, and then all of a sudden, within your view or around the corner, somebody begins to shout loudly, and they begin to communicate with a strong voice something about God? Anybody been there? Many of you have been around those situations? Wow, there needs to be more of that. I only saw two. Sometimes that experience is not only startling, but it's embarrassing. Because what is proclaimed or preached is not necessarily truth with love, but oftentimes it's truth without love. You can feel the heat. Woo! I know Jesus, and I, I'm not sure I know him right now. Wow, I know Jesus, but I don't know, I don't want, I don't know who you are. And I don't want to know you. I want to escape. We feel the judgment of God without his mercy or compassion. How many of you have had the experience that you've heard somebody shouting, you've seen a group proclaiming things about God, and it hasn't been that kind of experience at all? But you were stopped in your tracks, not only by the presentation or the demonstration, but you felt the love and connection of God in the midst of their presentation. I've spent a good part of my life being a part of groups of people who do just that. From my earliest days as a college student, when I traveled Europe, I was in a band with long hair singing about Jesus. I've sat up on, I've, I've been on street corners and I've done dramas where people have, have either thrown stuff at me 
Literally, we had props one time as a group, and we laid them down, and the next thing we knew, they were in the hands of an angry crowd, and we're like, I'm not sure if we're going to continue. <laughs> to people who are standing there in different parts throughout the world, through translation of song and dance or drama or a translator, hearing the gospel, and hundreds of people at the same time crying. Because the presence of God was there to connect the dots of what they were missing and who had created them and loved them more than they could imagine. This morning, I'm going to talk about repentance. And you're like, oh no, he's going to be the angry street preacher. Because oftentimes when we connect repentance with a feeling, we oftentimes don't connect it with the right feeling or the right experience. We see the angry judge. We see the the angry proclaimer who catches us in our tracks and maybe reveals some things to us that we are ashamed of. It's not that the truth is not the truth at times. That we are broken about or that we are caught in. But void of the love of God and the redemption that God offers, it brings condemnation. It brings fear. Or it it brings rebellion. Well, I'll show you. I don't care what you you say to me. I'm going to do what I want to do. And yet God communicates to us in his word that the very thought of repentance, Zach's 3.19 says, should bring refreshing joy. I want to talk to you about repentance this morning in the context of Luke 3 and this crazy man named John the Baptist. So would you look with me in Luke 3? We're going to be looking at the NIV version. It'll be up on the screen. I love it when you bring your Bibles, though, because I know that someone's not going around in your life and putting up an overhead when you need to read the Bible. So I love your smartphones, your, your, your leather Bibles, your hardback Bibles. I love it when your pages are torn and folded and there's red and blue all over them because God's spoken to you and you're writing notes. I love it that you're carrying the Word of God around with you and you're reading it. And maybe you're meditating on it and maybe you're memorizing it even better. Luke 3, verses 1 through 2. We'll jump right in here for the sake of time. In the 15th year of the reign, and by the way, I'm going I'm to just completely destroy half the names in this passage of Scripture. I just want you to know. In the 15th year of the... But I'm going to do it for all of you people out there that public speak, and you're like, I want to see somebody do this and make a fool of themselves. I'm going to do that for you. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and track that one, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. I know that one because that's a town in Texas. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas... The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah. And I think that you heard about John and Zechariah last week. The word of God came to John in the wilderness. We know from last week's sermon or the the previous scriptures that John was set set, set apart for God in the womb. Do you remember last week, or if you read, it says that the Spirit of God came upon John in the womb. So he is a transitional figure 
from, uh, in our Bibles of the story of the children of Israel from the Old Testament covenant introducing the one who would bring a new covenant, and his name is Jesus. This is the last prophet, the, the last crazy Old Testament prophet guy, dude. And he demonstrates that if you read all of the accounts of John the Baptist, you know he had long hair, he was shaggy, he was eating locusts and honey. He was just one of those crazy people that you either wanted to be around or you didn't want to be around all at the same time. I, you're really intriguing, but don't stand too close to me, you Steve. This was John the Baptist. But not only was John the Baptist a crazy, devoted person, but he was anointed by God before birth. For this task, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, prepared in his life to do one thing, to do one thing, and to do it with all of his heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And that's what we're going to read about this morning. He was prepared as the Word of God came to him to go and preach good news. I want to say that first. We're going to read, I'm not going to read the whole passage straight through here at the beginning. You can read ahead if you want to. We're going to take it, take it in chunks as we go. But the last passage, the last verse of this section, 1 through verse 18, says that he preached good news. And that word good news in the Greek is the gospel. So John the Baptist was not just coming, as you'll see in a minute, he preaches some strong words to people who are religious and who were stubborn, and he gets pretty strong with them. But I truly believe that John the Baptist is not like that guy that preaches in front of the Red Sox baseball game. I believe he's addressing different parts of the crowd with different messages, but his intent is to prepare the way, the scripture will say as we read it here earlier, later, to prepare the way for the Messiah, and we know that the Messiah's message is that his kindness and his love leads to repentance. And John knows about Jesus. And John knows his heart. And John knows what he's about. And John is bridging the gap of a prophetic Old Testament prophet saying, you need to get your hearts right. And why do you need to get your hearts right? Because you need to humble yourself so that you can receive the good news that Jesus Christ is not only going to forgive your sins, but he's going to cleanse you of your sin. He's going to save you from judgment. And he's going to fill you with his Holy Spirit and set you free to walk in power and goodness for the rest of your life. That's the message at the end of the message. You just got it at the front. It's good stuff. At least I think it's good stuff. That's good stuff. So he went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Some theologians note that this, this location, and we get not only by Luke. Luke was a, was a great historian. He was very precise. He was a doctor. He, he did all of his research. So in Luke... Verses 1 through 2, we have a really clear description of, of the time period of which this happened. And we also have a description of the locations in which John was doing his work. And some have noted that the same area that he was ministering in was the same area that Elijah was ministering in. And we know in the New Testament scripture that some of, uh, some of the, uh, the Jews thought that John might be Elijah who is returning. Who knows? What we do know, though, is that he is preaching a message of repentance and forgiveness to those who would come and hear. He's 
bridging the gap between the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and he is preparing the way for Christ. Baptism of repentance, verse 3. What does that mean? It's connected with uh, an inward change. It's connected with an external act or rite. People were being baptized to communicate what they were committing to on their inside. And I want to pause here and just uh, kind of explain the difference between forgiveness and repentance. Because they're both important. We love forgiveness in this room. I promise you. Everybody loves to be forgiven. And we love to be forgiven as quickly as possible. I don't know how, how, how many of you have gotten in trouble with your parents. I'll try, to, I'll try to hit the whole room. I'm thinking about my spouse. But you've gotten in trouble with somebody that you really love or you really respect, and you know you're the wrong person. And how they handle your transgression is really, really important. And boy, aren't we thankful when we are got our tail between our legs and we say, I know, honey, I am so sorry. Yes, I did that. I was not nice. And you're just waiting for the wrath to come. Anybody been in that experience? Anybody understand what I'm talking about? All right, a little sheepish right now. <laughs> and isn't it glorious when that person, my sweet wife, says, honey, you are a rotten scoundrel. <laughs> but I love you and I forgive you. Really? Yeah, I forgive you, and I'm not even going to hold on to it. Let's, get, let's just move forward. Really? I'll buy you roses. <laughs> we'll go out to dinner. That's forgiveness. I have done something wrong, and the person that I have wronged says, that's okay. You're forgiven. It's washed clean. Forget about it. That's awesome. Repentance is something different. Repentance is, honey, I'm so sorry. It's okay, you're a dirty, rotten scoundrel. I love you. You're forgiven. Don't worry about it. But don't do it again. And I say, I am not going to do it again. I have purposed in my heart not only that I need to ask for forgiveness, but I recognize that the sin that I did or committed or that I've been living in is not how I should be acting. And in the context of this passage of Scripture, it's not how God has created me to act. It's not how He's called me to live. And I'm not only looking for forgiveness, but I'm communicating, I repent. Repent means to turn completely the opposite direction. You've been heading this direction. You're, you are confronted. You're, you're stuck in your tracks. You're exposed. You're guilty. You're forgiven. And then you turn the other way and say, I'm not going to do that anymore. That is repentance. That's what John the Baptist was preaching in the desert. Repent. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Be baptized to communicate that you are no longer your own, but that you are committed and dedicated to the living God. 
And he was asking Jews to be baptized, which was very unusual. It was very normal for non-Jewish people to be baptized into the Jewish faith. That was actually part of the right of becoming a Jew if you were not born Jewish, was to be baptized. But for him to say to the Jewish people, you need to be baptized, was very offensive. We are children of Abraham. We've been circumcised. Why do we have to be baptized? He was calling for a radical Humility and and worship of the living God that is marked by a turning of their lives from sin. Verse 4 through 6, as it is written in the book of the word of Isaiah the prophet, a voice, this is describing John, of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight. The rough, rough ways smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. John was the prophesied forerunner for the Messiah. The Messiah who had come. He was the herald that goes before the king. He's the one saying the king is here. He's, he's getting the crowd spread out. He's he's laying down the road or whatever needs to happen before the king. He is preparing everybody ahead of time for who is coming. And the great news for John and the people of that day is that Jesus was already on the scene. It wasn't another hundred years away. He was in the region. He was in the area. And John was giving them one more opportunity to prepare their hearts for the message of the Messiah. Voice calling in the wilderness. Do we live in a wilderness? Are the values that you are exposed to or the, the, the things that are, are called right, are they bright with clarity and holiness or are they confusing and dark and and, and don't smell or, or, or speak of the things of God. Do we live in a wilderness? I think we do. If you don't, I think you do. We are in a wilderness even today. And Jesus is calling, prepare the way for the Lord. I'm here. I want to come into your life. I want to bring you to a place of deliverance and freedom and truth. Open up your hearts. Humble yourself. It was clear also at the end of that passage of Scripture, just just to, to be clear of John's understanding of Jesus, that this was a mission that Christ was coming that was for all people. That all people will see and hear the salvation of God. Every person in this room, no matter where you come from, every person outside this room, everybody that we pray for and we interact with, every person in the whole world, God is saying, I have revealed myself, I'm revealing myself to you, and as long as you live, you have a chance to know me. Isn't that exciting? There is nobody in this room that's out of the lottery. God loves you, and he's preserved you to this day to know the revelation of his love for you. Look on to verse 7 through 9. In, the, in these first, first couple of verses, he's warning the people that there's, not, there's no use being baptized without a true willingness to turn from sin 
It's expressed through actions or it's expressed through a life of repentance. If you don't repent, then he proclaims judgment. Listen, verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. This, this, this um, strength of communication that we see in John the Baptist, we see in Jesus in, during his life, don't we? And when do we see Jesus talk, like the, talk to the crowds like this? When he's around religious people who don't have the fruit of repentance in their life, who have made their religion their excuse to go on living sinfully and rebellious towards God. It's at that moment when Jesus overturns the money changers in the temple. He, he, he scourges the temple of those who have that same spirit when he looks uh, uh, to crowds of religious Pharisees and communicates that they're like Sodom and Gomorrah. There are times when Jesus does the same thing, but it's not to all the crowd. It's to the religious crowd who have hardened their hearts and said, I'm good enough because I have a religion without a transformation through humility and repentance and dependence on the living God. You can be in this room, we could be in this room together, and we could be like perfect attenders of the River Church. I want you to know we take attendance. There's a few of you that are at 96%. I don't know that. You could have perfect attendance. You could read your Bible every day. You could watch every religious TV broadcast show and have all of the Christian top 40 hits memorized and on Spotify playlist. You can go on mission trips. You can do all of those things out of a heart that's not born from humility and dependence on the Lord, but it's done because you think, if I'm religious enough, or good enough, God has to love me. And John, poor Jesus, and God is saying, the door into the kingdom of heaven is through repentance. And repentance as a culture is a culture of humility. It's a place where we say, I am not perfect, nor will I ever be perfect without the grace of God. I cannot do enough good things that merit God's favor because for every two good things I do, I'll speak about myself, I do three bad things. I can't measure up without God's help, but from the place of humility and grace before the Lord, I can say, God, please forgive me. My desire is to turn from the sin. Would you please help me? I need you. And he says, absolutely. I'll give you every bit of help you need. But for the brood of vipers, for those coming to put John in his place, he says, the axe is at the root, ready to chop down your tree. Mercy is extended when he says, Repent, for the time is at hand. How many times do we see people cross themselves, do all their religious responses, but have no 
more fruit in their life than an unbeliever that mocks the living God. In the second paragraph, verse 10 through 14, what should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has, uh, well, go back. 10 through 14, Luke indicates specifically how repentance looks in our life. And so they're asking him, what does this repentance look like? What should we do? And John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. I believe this little passage of Scripture is spoken to everybody in the crowd who has a tender heart, who's saying, we want to repent. And we know that it's accompanied by acts. What do we do? And he, he names one. He says, when we repent, it's not something that just happens on the inside. It's not something that we just hide and say, well, are, are you a believer in Jesus? Well, it's kind of private. I don't talk about those things. But it's something that's demonstrated by how we live. And in this context, it's demonstrated by generosity to those in need. What is repentance going to look like as a church if we walk in a culture of repentance through humility where we say, God, we can't, but you can. One of the ways it's going to look like is that we are going to have more tenderness and love for those who have need. And not just in our church, but out on the streets and in the homes that we live near. That when we have two coats and there's somebody who needs one, we share our coat. And if they need another one, we share another coat and we believe for another coat. And we sacrificially live our lives in a way that says, God, people matter because you made them and you created them. And But by the grace of God, I would be on the other side of this equation you hadn't touched me. Share with those who have need. Anyone, crowds, all of us. Poor, obviously, on his mind to show generosity to those who are without. This is what it looks like to repent. Pretty much everywhere that Jesus went, he touched people with this kind of generosity, didn't he? The leper, the demon-possessed, the poor, the children, the women, all of the outcasts in that society, Jesus touched and he said, you are loved and you are cared for. What can I give you and how can I mobilize the people around me to care for your needs? This is our story. This is who we want to be. And then he goes on. And he talks about another, another group of people. Verse 12, even tax collectors came to be baptized Teacher, they ask, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you should, you're required to, required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. He's pulling out the bad people of the society, the ones that the, ones that the Jewish people really hate, the ones that take their money and give it to Caesar, and the soldiers that, that corral them and, and, and treat them unfairly. And they come out, and they're in the same crowd, and he's rebuking the religious people, and the hungry, repentant tax collectors and soldiers are saying, what can we do? And he gives them the same answer. He looks at their situation and their place, and he says, live like God would live. What's it look like to you, tax collector? Don't charge people more than you should charge them. Be fair. Be honest. What's it look, to, look like to you, soldier? Don't extort people. Don't use your power to intimidate people and take from them what is not yours. But be content with what you're given. He's looking at their hearts. Has God gotten a hold of your heart? Believers, seekers, has God got you to a place where you're saying, God, whatever it looks like, 
I want to turn from that which is ugly and love as you would love. See, it's not just turning from sin, but repentance is turning from a bad way of living and starting to live in a holy way, a loving way, a caring way, a generous way. And this is what we want to see with as we look around in our culture. But listen, John doesn't list every sin for us. Jesus talks about other sins. Paul, the scripture, I mean, we have a whole list. I can just, a a compilation of Galatians 5, Ephesians 5, and 1 Timothy. These are things that God would want us to repent of. Sexual immorality, greed, obscenity, impurity, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, homosexuality, slave traders, liars, perjurers. These are things that are in Scripture that say, These are things you should not be living in or doing. And we could go on. And how could we go on? Because we know in our own hearts when we're in the presence of God what is holy and what is not, don't we? If we're really honest, the Spirit of God convicts us. But why does He convict us? So that we can be assaulted on the street corner by an angry judge? Or so that He can extend forgiveness and grace to us as we humble ourselves and repent? Why do people not repent? In our culture, why do we not repent? And we'll end with this. We, re- we don't repent because we really don't want God to tell us how to live. Now, we oftentimes don't say, God, don't tell us how to live. We put it on the human that's speaking for God. Don't you, pastor, tell me how to live. Don't you, relative, brother or sister, tell me how to live. Don't you, co-worker, tell me how to live because I want to live the way I want to live. But inwardly, if we really pause, we're saying to God, God, I don't want you to tell me how to live because I want to live the way I want to live. That is the resistance to repentance. But the humble heart where Isaiah 66 says, those whom God esteems are ones who are humble, who are contrite, they're tender when, when issues are brought up in their life, and they tremble in the presence of God's word. And they say, God, do whatever you want to do in me. That is the soil for repentance. He talks about Jesus um, baptizing. They came and they said, well, how do we do this? Who's the Messiah? And I won't read that passage, but as you read on, it says, I came to baptize you with water, with repentance, but there's one that's greater than I, who I can't even, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals, who will baptize you with the Spirit and with power and fire. It says power and fire. When we are baptized in God's repentance with with Christ as our center of faith, We identify ourselves with the living God. Baptism in the Greek talks about this picture of uh, the the Greek image would be of a dye that was put into, I mean, a cloth that was put into a dye. And when that cloth went into the dye, it was one color, but when it was pulled out, it was no longer that color anymore, but it was a new color. It was identified with a different color. When we turn our lives over to Jesus and we repent and we say, God, I want to believe in you, 
And we say, and we go on and we say, God, I want to identify with you. And one of our rights is baptism. When we are baptized, we are saying, Jesus, my old life, the old way in which I look, the color in which I have been living my life, I am burying with you. And I'm putting my stake, I'm putting my hold, I'm putting all my life entrusted in you. And I'm believing that you are my hope, my forgiveness, my salvation. And when we, when we pull ourselves, or when that pastor or whoever pulls that person up out of the water, that symbol now is old color, old dye, gone. And we come up with a new color, a new look, a new life. And literally, our water is not dyed a different color. We have a new color on the inside. It's a color that looks like God, that loves God, that's willing to live for God, that's willing to do whatever God calls them to do, that's willing to have a heart that beats as God's heart beats. It's willing to weep. It's willing to shout for Jesus. It's willing to do whatever he takes. That's our desire as we respond to the one in the desert who prepares the way for the Lord to find good news in Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me? What does it look like for you to humble yourself this morning? Peter said, if we repent and are baptized... In the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of our sins, the Spirit of God will come and make His home in us. Some of you might be in the room today and the Spirit of God is knocking at the door of your heart. And He's saying, it's time to let go and be free and to turn to me. You can turn to Jesus this morning. Jesus stands there with His arms open wide, His eyes intently focused on you and a smile on his face. He says, I have done the work for you. I've died for you. I've been tortured for you in your sin. I was buried in a grave. I was left for dead for three days and by the power of God himself, I was raised from death to life and I sit on the throne of heaven and I think about you. How Significant is it that God, and I truly believe this, thinks about you. Put your name in that thought and know that Jesus says your name and says, I love you. You could, you could find not only forgiveness this morning through your repentance and your turning to God, but you could find salvation that doesn't last for just a few years, but lasts for eternity. And you can find the hope and power to be free by the presence of the Holy Spirit. What about the rest of us? As you look around and see Jesus coming to Waltham, what does it look like? And where does it start? Where does it start? When I ask that question, my answer is it starts with me. God, it starts with me having a fresh, a fresh work of your spirit in my life. It starts with me saying, God, is there anything that hinders 
your move in my life, your work in my life to love other people, would you reveal that to me so that I can repent and turn to you in a fresh way? It starts with me asking God, what does it look like to act upon that life that you've given me to love other people? You see, God doesn't want your sin and repentance to be the focus of your life. Do you believe that? He doesn't want that to be your focus. He wants it to be the door for the focus. And the focus is the kingdom of heaven on earth. He doesn't want you to be playing around in mud and always talking about the mud. He wants to cleanse you of the mud, pick you up, hug you, and say, let's get out of here. And let's go do some fun stuff together. So Jesus, would you do that this morning? Would you refresh us this morning? Lord, we're, we're gonna spend just a few minutes over time here because it's so important. Lord, would you bring repentance to this room? Bring repentance. Bring an acknowledgement of sin that's destructive. And Lord, may there be a spirit of humility that says, God, I don't wanna live here anymore. Forgive me. And help me, Jesus, to be free. And I believe as I pray, Lord, and know in my own life that when we pray those prayers, there is forgiveness and there is freedom. So would you bring your repentance and forgiveness and power to overcome?